By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Since Russia invaded Ukraine last February, we've spoken many times about the ways in which macroeconomic trends, energy supplies, and political risks have changed the credit landscape in pretty fundamental ways. And issues related to climate risk are ever-present. For example, over the last year, and even over the last month, we've seen significant physical climate risks crystallizing due to extreme weather events all over the globe. So today we ask, How do we see ESG risks evolving in the year ahead? I'm your host, Sarah Carlson, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, where we answer the big questions facing credit markets. I'm delighted to be joined by two of the authors of our recently published ESG Outlook for 2023, Rebecca Karnovitz. Hi, Sarah. And Rahul Ghosh. Hi, Sarah. Good to be back on the podcast both of whom are in Moody's ESG team. Rebecca and Rahul, welcome to the pod. So Rahul, I'm going to send the first question your way. Does a credible roadmap for carbon transition exist? And what kind of progress do we expect to see in 2023? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. And, uh, and a very happy new year to you and your listeners. So like many in the market, we've been crystal ball gazing as part of our ESG outlook and really focused on the timing uh, the crystallization of risks, but also the magnitude of ESG risks in terms of the, the credit impact and the breadth, how many sectors are likely to be exposed to different risks. And so when we look at a vast multitude of different types of ESG challenges, we find that climate change remains front and at the core of our thinking. Over the medium term, of course, financial costs of physical climate risks, the scaling up of adaptation finance is going to be an important credit impact. But if we think about the here and now, one of the most material risks that we see for this year is growing scrutiny over corporate decarbonisation plans. We know that pledges have been made. There are many, many of them at a macro level, around 90% of GDP is covered by some form of net zero plan. But this year, we think there's going to be an increasing focus on the quality of targets and also how they're likely to be achieved. What's the plan that corporates are putting in place? So this is where we think that credible strategies are going to be a focus area for investors and companies without them are likely to come under increasing pressure. Now, what does it mean if investors aren't particularly convinced by these plans? And for example, can it make it harder for these companies to access funding? Uh, What are the consequences? I, I, I think it will over time, perhaps not access, but cost of capital could come under the microscope, but it's not going to be on the back of one factor, Sarah. It's going to be a combination of factors. So you have investor pressure, but also pressure from regulators in terms of tightening policy, and also the consumer. You know, ultimately, weakening demand for goods and services is going to impact uh, uh, cost of capital. And in fact, we've already seen some of this in play. We did some work last year, and we found that 20% of all the corporates that we cover have either high or very high negative exposure to transition risk. And of those, 30% are already seeing a meaningful negative impact on their credit rating. That leaves another 60% where we expect the risk to crystallize in the future, depending on how issuers respond. 
essentially the credibility, the integrity of their mitigation plans they put in place. So there really is the potential over time for the increase in impact uh, on credit ratings and credit worthiness, and by extension, Sarah, on uh, cost of capital. Maybe I can chime in here on this question of cost of, of capital. We, we've certainly seen a, a growing number of financial institutions commit to reducing their net finance emissions. So as these institutions start to make progress on their commitments, they're more likely to scale back on investments in, in carbon intensive activities. And so that can mean that, that capital does become more expensive for those highly exposed sectors. That's not to say that we expect financial institutions to immediately divest from finance, from extending financing to these companies. In fact, we, we expect uh, financial institutions to mostly engage with customers and help support that transition. But again, that means that for companies in, in the most exposed sectors, they're going to need to be clear about their targets and how, to, how they plan to follow through on those t- targets uh, in order to attract that financing. Now, Rebecca, just to, to follow up on that, I hear what you're saying, but I wonder, do the financial institutions you're thinking about actually have the tools to hand to make these judgments? Financial institutions certainly face uh, challenges in terms of implementing these targets, but and, and initiatives are still very much uh, in their infancy. So banks are, are by and large very much at the initial stages of, of articulating how they're going to follow through uh, on these plans. So we, we took a look at, at the net zero plans of, of about 122 banks globally, and we found that uh, most plans were really limited to interim targets and, and high-level strategies with, with European institutions generally ahead of the curve, in, pact, in, in part due to, to the specific policy and, and regulatory environment in Europe that, that is really pushing banks in that direction. It's, it's really hard for market practitioners to really get under the hood of net zero targets and really compare apples to apples. You have different baselines, uh, different coverage of greenhouse gases. You have nuances in different sectors as well. So I think this year we're going to start to see a lot of these initiatives like the Glasgow Finance uh, uh, Alliance, Financial Alliance for Net Zero really focus on providing guidance uh, and tools to financial institutions to really understand the credibility of, of, of net zero plans. Now, one of the things that is one of the big picture changes that we've seen is, of course, the interest rate environment is in a fundamentally different place now than it was, say, 12 or 18 months ago. How does that affect all of these plans that that we've just been talking about? Yeah, so so if we think about the last few years, the green investment boom has really had quite a supportive macroeconomic environment. I think this year there are more challenges. You mentioned a higher higher interest rate environment, but also elevated cost of labor, materials, slightly weaker global demand on the back of consumer pressures. All of this could raise project costs and could create some uncertainty. A lot of transition investment is asset heavy and requires long-term financing. So we do see a potential downside risk that companies delay or scale back uh, their investments in green technologies. Um, it's not a core scenario for us right now, but it is a downside risk. 
If that were to play out, that could lead to even more aggressive policy and market risks uh, in the future. So it really is a balancing act uh, for corporates this year. I do want to note that in, in some countries, you do have a more uh, supportive uh, policy environment that could help mitigate some of these headwinds that, that Rahul just mentioned. So one example is, is in the U.S., where you have federal subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act starting to flow to the economy this year, and that could support ramping up in, in green investment. Yeah, that's a great point, Sarah. And of course, in China as well, yeah, a lot of strong commitment towards uh, uh, the 2060 net zero agenda in, in China as well. So of course, yeah, policy remains uh, very focused on decarbonization. Building on this, what are the links that you see between changes in the macroeconomic situation and ESG trends, focusing particularly on social and governance issues? And does the weaker in economic environments necessarily mean that ESG risks then also become greater this year? Yeah, so in our outlook, we we identified two trends that are going to influence credit conditions this year that are very much tied to the cycle and to the current environment of slowing growth, high inflation, high interest rates. And as you mentioned, the first has to do uh, with social risks driven by high cost of living. So the fact that consumers are going to continue to be squeezed by high prices of basic necessities this year, that's going to have a have ramifications for debt issuers across sectors. So from governments to consumer facing corporates, uh, real estate, uh, securitizations. And then the second one, as you mentioned, relates to governance. And that's that's really how debt issuers governance attributes are going to influence their ability to to navigate this environment of of slowing growth, high inflation and and high interest rates. And I suppose piggybacking off of this a question, of course, springs to mind, which is, is this is there a difference between what we see in advanced markets and emerging markets? Or are we seeing similar kinds of pressures in different kinds of economies across the world? Look, I, I sit here in, in the UK, Sarah, and in recent weeks and months, we're seeing culmination, the consequences of higher inflation, access and affordability issues. We're seeing train strikes on a regular basis. We're seeing uh, nurses strikes as well. And so uh, you're really starting to see the impact of squeezing consumer purse strings, tight, wage, uh, tight wages as well in, in an inflation environment. And that's starting to lead to, in some sectors, tensions between um, workers on the one hand and businesses on the other. What that means from a credit perspective is we're seeing more labor action, we're seeing business disruptions. And in some cases, this is going to lead to increasing labor costs uh, for companies as well. So yes, emerging markets tend to be more exposed. They spend more of their income on food and energy. But this is really a worldwide issue that we're seeing. Maybe I, I can add to that in general, lower rated issuers, especially those deeper into speculative grade, tend to be more vulnerable to a deterioration in credit conditions, including rising ESG risks. And that's true whether this is an issuer located in Europe or in, in an emerging uh, market economy. And that's in part because lower rated issuers tend to exhibit governance attributes that make them more vulnerable to shocks. 
So for example, for corporates, that can include aggressive financial policies, such as higher leverage that make them more vulnerable to turns in the cycle. And, and actually, when we look at the distribution of, of, of ratings for non-financial corporates, we see that in the U.S. And, and, in, and in Europe, a large share of the leveraged finance market is companies rated B2 and below that do tend to have high leverage, weak interest rate coverage, and low or, or, or negative cash flow. And so those, those are issuers that are going to be uh, more challenged in, in the current macroeconomic environment. Well, just before we wrap up, I wanted to to briefly touch on how the rules of the road are evolving for, for ESG investments and whether there are reputational risks that, that companies face. Rahul, do you want to start? Yeah, companies have, and investors, to be fair, are facing a pretty complex architecture of regulations can differ quite significantly across different jurisdictions. So you have uh, predominantly here in Europe, a very sort of hands-on regulatory focus to really create a quite complex architecture. Uh, In other jurisdictions, it's more hands-off. And then also, as we've seen in the US, there are in some quarters pressure to perhaps exclude or minimize the integration of ESG considerations as well. Taking a step back, I think in some ways, this sort of spectrum of voices is a sign that ESG is now very much front and center in shaping capital markets and capital markets uh, sort of architecture, if you like. But of course, it it does become challenging, particularly for financial institutions. There could be regulatory uh, or reputational risks stemming from ESG positioning. And so that's a challenge that many are going to have to navigate. And just to add to what what Rahul was saying in terms of regulatory action, we, we've already seen regulators fine companies for misreporting or, or allegedly you know, misrepresenting ESG credentials of, of investment funds. So, for example, last year, the SEC uh, in the U.S. fined a, a subsidiary of, of Bank of New York Mellon for uh, omissions and misstatements about how they incorporate uh, ESG consideration in certain mutual funds. That said, the fine was quite small. It was about one and a half million dollars, which is really quite immaterial uh, for a company of that size. But it does signal that this is something we're likely uh, to see more of from regulators going forward with potentially growing reputational and financial implications for affected companies. So just to wrap up big picture for today, I'm going to ask you the same kind of question that we ask our guests in every episode, which is what is an important ESG issue that may not be on listeners' radar screen, but probably should be for 2023? For me, Sarah, I'd go with Sort of natural capital risk, biodiversity loss, and to more generally responsible natural resource management. Uh, firstly, I think we're getting a better understanding of the nexus between nature and climate. Uh, if we protect mangroves, they're, they're fantastic natural barriers against storm surges uh, and also excellent carbon sinks, right? So there's clearly an interconnectivity between the two. Uh, we've also had on the policy side, Sarah, the UN Biodiversity Conference, so the other COP uh, at the end of last year, and we saw 
the coming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. And so what that means is we have many, many commitments, but the important one is uh, uh, countries signing up to protecting 30% of land, 30% of marine areas by 2030, so the so-called 30 by 30. If that really takes off, and we do need a little bit more uh, a finer detail around it, it could potentially be the Paris moment for biodiversity that really starts to drive corporate and investor action in this space. I would pick the growing focus on reducing waste and pollution and the growing interest in circular economy solution. So there's there's really an increasing recognition among policymakers, consumers, corporations that addressing climate change is going to involve producing differently, consuming differently, disposing of waste differently, and that's going to affect a range of sectors. So usually think of packaging and consumer goods, but it's also it's chemicals, apparel, agriculture, autos, mining, etc. Rahul and Rebecca, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.